0: All right, we're going to be in the book of Ruth, chapter 4, always a big Sunday here at Providence whenever we wrap up a series, and this series has gotten us through the summer here in the first part of the fall, the book of Judges and the book of Ruth together as we have considered these, uh, these books, so it's always a big deal to get through and, uh, and finish this Shattered Savior's series this week, and I can't tell you how much I have enjoyed the ability to preach these two books together, these two books back to back. If you've not been here for uh, the whole summer, you've not been here for, for all of these messages, they're all available uh, online. But the, to be able to listen, to do these two books together, I think, has been uh, just the contrast between the two books has been so much fun for me in my own preparation, and my own study, as we've Uh, As we went through the book of Judges this summer and as we went through uh, all of the stuff that was there, I I could feel, and I think you guys could feel it here, uh, maybe I'm projecting myself onto you guys, but I think you guys could even feel it uh, here this summer as we went through the book of Judges that each week just got heavier and heavier. It got darker and darker, and each of my sermons felt less and less fun, for lack of a better term, each week. It was like, man, I've got to preach this message because it's here, and I've got to cover this guy because, because he's here and he does this thing, but but man, they just got dark. They got very, very uh, heavy, and, and, and really my, my study, my preparation, it just became like, ah, I don't even want to read this stuff. And, and, and by the end of the week when it was time to preach these sermons about Gideon and about Samson and about Jephthah, that I, I found just the, the weight of the messages, the weight of their failures kind of landed on me. So it wasn't, it wasn't tremendous fun, even though it was uh, very beneficial for me to be able to, to prepare those and to preach those. Um, but what, what makes it so good to preach through the weightiness and the heaviness of those books is then now to transition here to the book of Ruth over the course of the last few weeks and find myself just even as I read through the book and I start preparing these sermons, I'm just smiling. They just It just makes me happy to to be able to read these stories, to read this particular love story between these two and, and how all these things work out and how we get to the place we're at uh, today, as we reach our final episode of our TV drama that we've kind of been following and, and, and we get here, it just makes it so much better. This book just makes me smile. It has only reinforced my love for the book of Ruth to be able to preach through it. And, uh, and what we're going to do today as we see this final episode in our uh, drama is that we're going to see there's a massive plot twist at the end of this book. Like the final words of this book, don't read them yet, the final words of this book whenever you get there, uh, it completely changes the whole context of what we've been reading. It completely, it, it fills in a gap that you didn't even know was there, and it will, it will, it will change the way you read the book of Ruth once you read these final, uh, these final verses, this little piece of information that's been hidden from us the entire time. We've gotten a hint or two about it but it's been hidden from us, but now it's going to show all of this to us. So let's dive in, and what we're going to do is we're going to to let the book of Ruth finish, and we're going to end the book of Ruth this morning, Uh, and and we'll let the way that the book of Ruth finishes kind of frame for us uh, the opportunity to go back and look a little bit at the book of Judges, or at least consider the book of Judges in light of what the book of Ruth has taught us. If you'll remember last week, we left off as our man Boaz has gone to the city gates. He has very shrewdly negotiated the rights to marry Ruth as her kinsman redeemer. And we talked a lot about what the kinsman redeemer is last week, this unique legal status that Ruth uh, had used to convince Boaz of, of, his, uh, uh, of his ability and, and, and why he should marry her and uh, and as our episode closed out last week, the elders have gathered around Boaz. They're patting him on the back. They're celebrating, and they're saying congratulations on this marriage that is about to be. Everyone is all smiles, and, uh, and, and they're at the town gate as Boaz prepares to marry Ruth. So this week, we get to see the epic conclusion to this story. So, uh, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter in law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse so a beautiful picture, a beautiful end to our love story. It's almost like in my mind's eye, it's the fairy tale type of ending. You can you can picture Boaz and Ruth standing over Naomi as she plays with her grandson and smiles, just you know, everybody smiling ear to ear. Ruth or Naomi is smiling looking at uh, at, her, at her grandson, you've got, you've got Ruth and Boaz kind of lovingly looking in each other's eyes. It's this picture-perfect moment. It's, it's the moment in the movie where like, everything turns into an illustration, and then the, the, the book zooms out, and the fairy tale book closes. You know what I'm talking about? At the end of, the, at the end of those type of, uh, of shows, those type of movies, it's just a, a beautiful picture. Just everyone smiling and giggling, happiness all around I don't know how you can read this ending and and smile from the sad or and not smile from the, the sadness of, of chapter one and, and all the, the the desolation that seemed to be there to the fullness and the celebration that is chapter four. It's a good story, well done narrator, good job. They're married, the baby is here, all is well, fade to black, and we're done. But the narrator has one final note for us. He's got one more little thing. So, so like this is the, the fade out. The illustration is there. The, the action is done. And the narrator comes over and gives us one more piece of information that's been hidden and re- reframes everything that we've read in the previous four chapters. So let's get that information here in verse 17. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, and Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. You catch the piece of information that we get there as the narrator reads over this beautiful picture. It turns out that Ruth and Naomi were not some random widows that we, we just happen to get a piece of their story. They're not some random widows in the midst of national turmoil that are desperate for help. It turns out Boaz wasn't just some rich single farmer that happened to help out Ruth, it turns out this story that we've been reading isn't the story of a random family during the time when the judges ruled. It turns out that this is actually the great King David's great-grandfather and great-grandmother. It turns out Naomi is actually the grandmother of the child that would become the grandfather of Israel's greatest king, King David. It turns out that this is a much bigger story than any of us had realized, a story that impacts world history even today, but certainly impacts salvation history. We had some foreshadowing of it back in chapter 1 when it tells us that they were in Bethlehem and that they had returned back to Bethlehem after they had become widows. Bethlehem is known now, we know it as, the city of David. But it wasn't the city of David whenever Naomi lived there. It was the city that had no food and had a famine whenever Naomi lived there. It was just Bethlehem. It's the city of David now because it was the city of Naomi and Elimelech. It was the city where they lived. That's where Naomi's family is from, and now that is why that is where David is from. This whole book, this whole book has not just been a beautiful love story, but it certainly is that. It's been. It's been the backstory of a king. It's been kind of the origin story of where did this guy come from? Where did this king come from? You see, the point of the book of, uh, of Judges and the book of Ruth, these two together, it's not that you would read them independently of one another, but together. Because together, you get to see a picture of how God does what he does. Of how God has chosen to work here in this world. You get to see this picture. You get to see in Judges the faithlessness of Israel and the faithfulness of God. You see, the book of Judges shows God using deeply flawed individuals to deliver Israel. So he he, he rescues them in the depth of their unfaithfulness. He shows up in the the midst of the most unfaithful time in the the, the nation's history. He, He shows up. Even in that dark, dark period. But the book of Ruth shows us that he was also working another plan too. You know, the book of Judges, that's what the judges were. Remember, they were deliverers. And what would happen is Israel would fall away. They would realize life stinks and they would remember, oh wait, we need a call back to God. God would send a deliverer, a judge, to bring them. And so he, he, he was with them in the immediate suffering and in the immediate pain And in the immediate faithlessness of Israel, that's what the book of Judges teaches. But the book of Ruth teaches that he had another plan too. In the midst of of, of his work in those immediate days, he was also playing the long game. He was working another plan. God gets a bad rap in the Old Testament. God gets a bad rap in the Old Testament. It's not uncommon to hear. I I wouldn't be surprised if, if many of you have had the same thought or if many of you have said the same thing. It's not uncommon to hear people say that they like the God of the New Testament more. That they like the God in the New Testament more because he seems to be so much more gracious. He seems to be loving. That that you can keep the Old Testament God. In fact, some have gone to build entire uh, theologies out of this. Where you just leave the Old Testament behind and all you have is the New Covenant. All that matters is the New Covenant and the New Testament. But I'm here to tell you, you miss on such a beautiful picture of God whenever you do that. God of the Old Testament gets a bad rap. The one in the Old Testament is supposed to be mean and vengeful. The one in the New Testament seems nicer, kinder, the kind of, kind of God you like, to, you like to hang out with. Friends, you need to hear me this morning. God is immutable. He does not change. And while Jesus might shift, uh, might, might shift some of, of how God works from the old covenant to the new covenant, and, and, and the coming of Jesus definitely changes how God deals with his people in some ways, God never changes. And I promise you, I promise you, hear me, I promise you, you want an Old Testament God. You may not think you do, but you want an Old Testament God. You want the God of of Judges, the one that helps you in the moment that you need him. And you want the God of Ruth that is working a bigger plan than you can even fathom. That's the first thing that I want us to see this morning is that God works in ways that we cannot see and in places we wouldn't even think to look. He works in ways we cannot see and in places we wouldn't even think to look. Naomi had no idea when she returned to Bethlehem that she was about to witness God working out the grand plan that would see the rise of Israel's greatest king and that it was going to happen through her and through her daughter-in-law who has come with her, who she's tried to send back to Moab, her Moabite daughter-in-law, God was in the midst of working. She had no idea and wouldn't have even thought to look there to see God's hand at work. She just thought she was going back home because she had nothing else to live for. Ruth had no idea that she was going to be the mother of the grandfather of the great King David when she clung to her mother-in-law and when she said, your God will be my God. She just knew that she couldn't leave uh, Naomi and that she was all in with her and with Naomi's people and with Naomi's God. That's all she knew. She knew that she had to be faithful in that moment to Naomi's God. It it wasn't even her God she had taken ownership of yet. She knew she had to be faithful to Yahweh, and she had to be faithful to Naomi. That's all she knew. She had no idea the work that God was doing. Boaz didn't know that when he offered a blessing to Ruth this this Moabite who had shown up in his field and was gleaning and, 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 and trying to find whatever scraps she could for her family. Boaz had no idea whenever he, he, he prayed for her and offered her a blessing that, that, she, that, that Ruth would receive a full reward under the God of Israel's Wings under whom you have taken refuge. That was in chapter 2. Boaz didn't know that meant that he would be a part of that reward. That he would be a part of of what it looked like for God to spread his wings over Ruth. Boaz had no idea that this wouldn't just be a few sacks of grain for Ruth that he gave to her. But instead an entire family tree in the genealogy. Of a king. Boaz had no idea. They had no idea. The people of Israel, in their unfaithfulness throughout the book of Judges, would repeatedly call out to God and to, to save them, to raise up a, a, a new judge to deliver them. And each time they would fall further and further into sin. Remember, this was the, this was the, the, the word that, that, that jumps off the page for you in, uh, in the book of Judges, is cycles. And it was this downward spiral, this downward cycle that they went through in Judges, which was, which was repent, God raises the judge, they fall away, repent, God raises the judge, They fall away just over and over and over. Each time the suffering would get worse and worse. And the judge that God would raise up would be more and more broken. By the end of the book of Judges, they had effectively abandoned Yahweh and walked away from Him. And yet God kept working and they had no idea. He kept delivering. And now we know that He had a much bigger rescue in mind the whole time. In the midst, remember, Ruth is in the time when the judges ruled. And they had no idea that God was doing this. To everyone, it just looked like the everyday difficult life they all lived. Don't, don't miss this. To everyone that, 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 that lived in the time of the judges, the stories that we know of Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, the stories that we don't know, to everyone, it just looked like everyday difficult life that they all lived. Death and famine, oppression, war, murder, marriage, births, work, harvest. It was just everyday life to these people. It was just what they woke up every every day and did in order to get by. And so it is with us. We get up. We go to work. We go to school. We do our thing. We just do life. Life. We go to sporting events, we go to weddings, we go to funerals, and it all looks like pretty standard fare, like this is just what we do in this world to get by, but in the midst of it all, what we can't see is that God is working in all of it. He's always working. We like to talk about God's working as though it's grand and miraculous, and make no mistake, it certainly can be. But what I've found is that most often God works in the very mundane, the very ordinary, the very simple, the, the very almost imperceptible ways in our life. God is always working. And we make a mistake when we limit, we limit the, the discussion of how God works to the, the grand and the spectacular that goes up in marquees and lights and flashes and says, this is God, look at me and look what I've done. Because most often it's in the background, it's in the quiet, it's in the mundane, it's in the ordinary, and we have no idea. We have no idea. So this morning, if you are dealing with the, the stuff of a broken world, if you're dealing with the stuff of a broken world, if this world is grinding on you. If you feel the strain of this world, if you feel the, the 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 brokenness of this world on your mind, on your body, do not despair. God is always at work. Always at work. He has not forgotten you. The testimony of the Old Testament God over and over and over again is that Israel is a people that God should have forgotten, but he never does. Never does. He hears their cries. He has not forgotten you. And in spite of plenty of reasons, that plenty of reason otherwise, he's not even against you. He's not even against you. Sometimes you get a glimpse of this. And sometimes, like Ruth, you just need to go out into the field and do the work, you just need to wake up. Press on and keep moving forward. Some days you just need to go out into the field and glean so that you can eat today. And God is working in that. Which leads me to, I think, the second thing that we need to see this morning is that God works on a time frame entirely His own. He works on a time frame entirely His own. Not only will you 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 not always see God working, sometimes his work is painfully slow. Painfully slow. And I don't choose I don't I don't use that word painfully lightly. It is literally painfully slow in the way that he works. Ruth begins in the midst of a famine. The book of Ruth begins in the midst of a famine. And with Naomi's two sons marrying two daughters, we're told that they were there 10 years. We're not exactly sure what the they is whenever it says that they were there 10 years, but we know at at minimum likely what happened is that for 10 years after the two sons were married to their new wives, they went without having any children. We don't know a whole lot about that time of their lives. It goes through very quickly in the book of Ruth. It's really just a couple of verses, just a couple of sentences. But we know they were struggling for food. We know they were married. And we know that both sons could not bear sons for a decade. This would have been terribly painful for this family. It would have been terribly scary for this family, especially a family that had left their people in Israel and had gone to Moab, because it would have meant that, that they would have had no one to continue on their family line. They would have had no one to carry on after them. They would have had no legacy. They would have effectively disappeared from the tribes of Israel, from the people of Israel. They would have been gone. No doubt these families would have been despair. Over not one, but two marriages not producing a child. It's, it's at least a decade of that. At least. That is a long time to deal with that kind of pain. But it's just a, small, it's just a couple of verses in our story. It's just a small part. Of the narrator just zooms right by it. But, but we know that ten years of not seeing God work is a painful place to be. We, we know that the going through that had to be excruciating and they had no idea what was going on. They were just looking at the world around them and the world that they were living in and as far as they could tell, they could just say, where is God? Once Ruth and Naomi returned to Bethlehem, things pick up a bit in our pacing and our story, but even there, the day to day is still just that. It's just the day to day. God never hits the fast forward button. God never says, let's just zoom past the suffering here. Let's just zoom past the hard parts. Let's just zoom past the dark parts. God never does that. He's in no hurry. And he will do his work in his own time. This is the part we're usually not good with. Most of us are very okay. I I dare say that most people in this room, most of you guys here in this room, I dare say that most of you are good with the, the first part. That God's always working, we just don't always see it. Like that's comforting, that feels good. But it's this part is the part that we struggle with. That God is in control, always at work. But just not on our timetable. Just not at the speed and the pace that we would like. And I'd also guess that if if you guys in this room are anything like me, you've probably offered this prayer more than once in your life. Maybe more than once this week. God, I don't know exactly what you're doing, but I sure wish you would just go ahead and do it already. You've been there? Man, I know I have. Just teach me whatever lesson you're trying to teach me. I'm a willing learner. Just can we move past this, please? Where is the fast forward button? Let me draw the lesson as we speed past this part of life. Can we just move on past this? But God's work is often slow and at times imperceptibly slow. My yard right now is finally getting to the place where I feel like I don't need to mow it like twice a week because of, of, of rain and, and, and temperatures and stuff. So so we're finally getting to that place where mowing the yard is starting to slow down just a little bit. We're heading into fall. The time between mowings can 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 hold off just a little bit, but it's still growing. Here's the thing. I can go out and I can sit in my front yard. I can go out there today. When I get home, I can sit down in my front yard. And here's what I know is that that grass is growing. But when I sit there, I can't see that. When I sit there, I won't be able to see that that grass is growing let's go back to like April and May when the grass really starts taking off and it feels like you mow and then you wake up the next day and it's like, hey, there's those dandelions that I just mowed yesterday, right? So you, you come out and, and, and it's already there. But if I had stayed there all night long and watched, I would never have noticed the dandelions growing up. I never would have seen it. Imperceptibly slow. Slow but you give it 3 weeks and the neighbors are going to be talking because it's growing it's moving in a direction it is something is happening even though you can't see it even though it's not as fast as you might like the pace may be slow it may be so slow that it seems that you're at a standstill just because you can't perceive the work of God, make no mistake about it, He is always working, even if it's not at your pace, but His. So next time, next time you feel the frustration of this, which may be like an hour from now, maybe it's a week from I don't know when it is, but next time you feel this frustration... And you're just like, God, I don't see you working at all. I don't see you here. I, I don't see what you're doing at all, God. I don't, I don't see it. Just go out on your porch. Go walk in your yard. And look at that grass at your feet. And be reminded of this lesson. That just because you don't see it, and just because it's very slow, doesn't mean it isn't happening. Be reminded of God's faithfulness even when you can't see it and it's that slow. For Naomi, God's work was made evident in in, in a little over a decade. For Israel, God's work was made evident over the span of a few generations when David would finally take the throne. For us, God's work is made evident over the course of thousands of years. You see, while the narrator of our story was pointing ahead to the King David that was coming, even he didn't know that King David was pointing forward to something else. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this was the first registration when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and all went up to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. It gives me cold chills to read that. To, to know that, that this right here in the book of Ruth was the, the groundwork for this that would come, that would come so many years later, that in the city of David, to you this day is born Christ the Lord, the city of David, our excellent storyteller, this wonderful narrator who has served us so well in the book of Ruth, didn't even know this was coming. Because Ruth wasn't just pointing us to David. But pointing us to the Messiah. You see, you want to have an Old Testament God like the one of Judges and Ruth. And you want to have a New Testament God like the one of Luke chapter 2. The one that tells the story of a God that has not forgotten his people. The one that tells the story of a God that has remained faithful and has always been working a plan for their rescue. Does that sound familiar? It's the same story in the old as it is in the new. And the reason it's the same story is because it's the same God who's working the same plan. A God that sees his people's needs and meets them even whenever the, when they could, they could not meet it themselves. Even when they couldn't fully see the need themselves. Even when they couldn't even comprehend the need themselves. God is working the plan and meeting the need. This is what God does. And it's what he's doing for you and for me this morning. Jesus has come to meet our needs. He's come to meet us in these places. In the book of Judges, in the book of Judges God comes to meet them even in their unfaithfulness and in their suffering. In the book of Ruth, he comes to meet Ruth and Naomi in the midst of their suffering. And he comes to meet them in, in the midst of, of all that is happening nationally all around them. He never forgets them. He will meet with you in your suffering too. And he is always working a plan. I hadn't, really, I hadn't really planned on talking about some of this stuff this, this morning. I, I know in this room this morning, there's a, there's a lot of people dealing with a lot of stuff. There's a lot that's happened to, to families and, and, to, and to folks in this church over the course of the last few months and weeks. There's a lot of heaviness. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of just, just trying to figure things out. This past week on uh, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, I can't remember what it was, Emily, Emily woke me up to a Facebook post that, was, that, that, that she had seen, and she told me that uh, my best friend from, from middle school and high school, you guys have ho- heard me tell stories about him in here. My best friend growing up had passed away. That... Uh, We didn't have any more information than that. Uh, I I get online, I start trying to figure out some things, and it turns out he passed away a couple weeks ago. I hadn't talked to him in about two years. He's not been in a good place really his entire life. He was, he was, it, it was hard for him his entire life. I've been trying to sort through that a little bit this week and trying to figure out like what... What do we learn from this? What do, we, what do we know about this? It turns out the funeral was last weekend. I didn't even get a chance to go to my best friend's funeral. It was tough. It was hard. We've been dealing with some other stuff too. We're working through some other things as a, as a family. And I, and I know that that's just like one small piece of what so much, so many of you guys are going through and so many have dealt with this week. And I, I have to tell you, I wish that, 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 that we didn't have to endure that stuff. I wish we didn't have to to deal with these type of things. I wish the suffering wasn't a part of our world that we are in, but we know that it is. And for whatever reason, God has, has chosen not to remove that from us and not to take us out of that in this world. Why he's chosen to do it that way, I don't know. I can't fully understand that. Certainly part of that is a consequence of a broken world, broken by sin, ours and others. But he's chosen that he, he, he's going he's gonna to allow us to function and make it in this world full of suffering and full of pain. You're going to want an Old Testament God that walks with you in suffering that hears your cries for mercy, that raises up deliverers, that works plans in the midst of suffering, that sees all your suffering and all your pain and never lets any of it go to waste. You see, in the Christian life, there is unnecessary suffering. There is suffering that, that, that perhaps we could avoid if, if we were to follow God rightly, if we were, if we were not to, uh, to follow our own path, and if we were to, if, if, if we, if we were to do things the way that God has, had called us to. There can be unnecessary suffering in the Christian life, but there is no empty suffering. And whether the suffering is a result of something that, that you've done and, and something that, 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 you've, uh, that you're dealing with the consequences of sin, or whether the suffering that you're dealing with or the, the struggle you're going through right now, whatever it is, if it has nothing to do with your own sin, but instead it's just a reality of a broken world we live in. There's no such thing as empty suffering. So while we must endure it, we do not endure it purposelessly or aimlessly. God has chosen that in all of our suffering, He can redeem it all. And He will redeem it all. God assures us that all our pain is seen, is heard, and is ultimately used for His glory and for our good. You want an Old Testament God that's like that. You're going to want a New Testament God, too, who hasn't left us in our suffering and our sin, a God that has proven through the cross that he is unquestionably for you, that he is working on your behalf. You're going to go through things where you're going to need to know. Not like, you, not like you need like a, a stuffed animal to make you feel better, but you're going to absolutely need to know that God is on your side. That He is with you. That He is for you. When your physical health or your mental health is at a breaking point, you're going to need to know that God is not one who is out to get you, but that He is one who has come to get you. And that is what the New Testament teaches us. You're going to need to know that the Rescuer has come. And Jesus proves that to us beyond all doubt. And when you come face to face with your sin, and when you reckon with the fact that, that, that you have been an enemy of God and that you will give an account for that whenever you die, you're going to need to know that, that, that even then, God has proven that He is for you. That is what the cross is all about when he was broken, and when he was shattered on your behalf. You're going to want the Old Testament God and you're going to want the New Testament God because they're the same God. One God working one grand rescue on your behalf who has shown that he is for you. This is the God that we worship. From Genesis to Revelation to today to right now, God has shown that and he shows that at every turn. Before you this morning, we have the elements for the Lord's Supper and we'll take those after we, we sing a song. We're going to take a few minutes to reflect and then we'll come up and we'll take these elements and I'll, I'll come up and, and talk about those here in a few minutes. But, but these elements are evidence of our need for our Savior of our need for a Savior, and, and it's also a testimony to a God that has met that need. It is the testimony of a God who has not, who has not looked at us and said, I will, I will bring suffering, and suffering down upon you, but instead the testimony of a God who says, I will enter into that suffering with you. And so we'll take these elements in a few minutes and recognize that Jesus, unlike the judges, was not broken and was not shattered in who he was, like the judges were, but was broken and shattered for us in order that we might be whole. And he has shown that he has not forgotten us. And you're going to want that kind of God. The pages of scripture tell us that's exactly who he is. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, we, we confess that too often we, we want to create you in our image. That we want to craft a God that we think that we want. That we want to worship a God that is of our own making. That we want to do what is right in our own eyes. And that we want a God that will will sanction all of that. Father, that is our confession this morning. But it is our praise that you, you don't give us what we think we want, but instead you give us exactly what we need. that you have not left us in our suffering to flounder, that you have not left us in our, in our pain to just, to just endure, but that you were always working. And you always have been. You always will be. And almost inconceivably, you have been working for us. Father, teach us the lesson of judges and Ruth and Luke and the cross and the resurrection. Write that on our hearts this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.